no matter how it goes, whether you're moving or they're moving, it's a juggle. More on this in this episode of Stationed with Stories. Station with Stories. That's it. All right. You are listening to Stationed with Stories. I am your host, Kalisha Hollis-Jesse. And before we get started, let me just let y'all know that these are all my thoughts, my thoughts, my thoughts. And they do not represent or reflect the positions, opinions, or views of the U.S. Armed Forces in any way. All right. Now that we got that over. Hi, peeps. We are marching right along, y'all, and I am in, I'm in like spring heaven, spring joy. It is not quite the temperature that I need it to be right now, y'all, but for sure, the the flowers are in bloom. It's lovely. It is lovely. And you know what else is lovely, y'all? These books. And I will tell you that I have been in a nonfiction fix recently and I noticed that and so I'm going to mosey myself on to some fiction probably soon. We will see. But this week I have another nonfiction book for you. This one was part of the Social Justice Book Club. So if you were with me last week, you know that I reviewed a book and it was um, a book for that particular book club. And I mentioned that there was another book that I did not finish reading for February, back in February. And I went to the book club anyway, y'all. I don't typically do that, but I did go because I just moved here. Y'all know how it is. You just kind of hop on in. You just have to get in where you fit in. So I hopped in. I read like a third of the book before the book club meeting, had a great discussion. It was really interesting for me to be in that group and hear their thoughts about the book. And it didn't spoil anything for me because it comes straight out of the headlines, straight out of real life. And a lot of us heard, know about the Flint water crisis. The book is called What the Eyes Don't See by Mona Hanna Atisha. It came out in 2018. Now, my three words for this book are focused, insightful, angering. All right. So this book was very focused. From the top, let me just share that the author of the book is actually a pediatrician researcher in Flint. And she, along with many other people, really sounded the alarm about the lead in Flint water. Now, she wrote this book and has a name that a lot of people recognize because she had a press conference where she spoke about the elevated lead levels in children's blood. She had the data. Now, before she did the press conference and she had a lot of people there at the press conference, a lot of support from, and I shouldn't say a lot of support from local leaders, but she had some support from some leaders, some key leaders and outside of Flint leaders as well, who knew about the crisis and knew that they were covering up the Flint water issue with with lead and how this lead was poisoning children, poisoning everyone. But specifically the way that lead works, it interferes with the development of children. So it was particularly 
important for the leaders, those who were in charge of monitoring the water. And this is after the water supply, Flint's water supply changed from Detroit's water supply. And from there, things went haywire. Now, the book is focused because she really, this pediatrician, and she she writes about this struggle to once she found out that, yes, there is a problem with our water and it's poisoning our children, we need to do something about it to the point where year plus into the future is kind of where she ends it. There's, they've gotten the state and the federal funds, basically, and recognition that it was very much preventable and it was covered up. There was a cover up that there was actually lead in the children's water, in the people of Flint's water. So she she talks about that. Y'all, it's ongoing, but it's focused because she has such a focus on children, on kids. She's a pediatrician. She talks about the kids at Flint. She talks about how important it is for her to fight for the kids at, in Flint, uh, how important it is for her to fight for you know the next generation. And that focus carries throughout the book. And it's part memoir. It's it's part memoir because she talks about her, not just her personal history with environmental activism. Even as a child, she was into like clubs, environmental activism clubs in high school, and that continued throughout her life, that interest. But even her her family generation, she talks about Haji, who is her grandfather coming from Iraq and how the motherland really shaped his life. And it really shaped the life of the whole family because of the peace that they had before. And then through the generations of horror and of persecution. And that she talks a lot about Saddam Hussein and his regime and how that impacted her people and how that impacted her parents and how they understood governments and how they understood people of power and how she was raised. And so it's part memoir is focused in those chapters when she's talking about these roots that she has and how they've impacted her and the stories that she heard growing up as a child. She talks about that and that's very focused, but I think it always relates back to what's happening on the ground in the moment, which is her dealing with this realization that, oh my goodness, my children are being poisoned by lead and there's no cure for lead poisoning. Lead poisoning has so many different, so many different negative impacts on a child's future. And I can get into that now because it is very insightful. The book is so insightful because I I, I knew that lead poisoning was a big deal. I know that there are a lot of remediation efforts. You know, if there's lead paint in a house, you know, that's it's awful. And you have to make sure that's taken care of before you bring a child into the home. I know all these things, but I did not know what lead actually did to the body. It was so insightful. Her as a pediatrician talking about how unbelievable it was that they covered this up when the experts, right, the water experts, the health experts would have known how much of a negative impact lead in the blood would have for years to come, for years to come. And we are talking about, I mean, a lot of houses had toxic waste levels of lead and no amount of lead is good for the body. 
at all. And so it was very insightful. She talks a lot about that from a pediatrician standpoint and also just government, politics, who's involved, who's responsible, who do you need to talk to to have a movement actually go somewhere. And once again, she does definitely give deference to those parents, those community members who were activists, who were sounding the alarm and saying, there's something wrong with our water. Check this out. Check it out. Like test our water. Something's wrong with our water. They, I mean, they had sound alarm way before she came on the scene, right? But when she did come on the scene and when she did actually test the numbers that she had access to as a researcher, that was that was really the nexus point. That was the generation point for her where she just she moved forward with that information. And so it was it was very insightful. The government side, the the part about lead. And it's really insightful, not just with the lead piece, but her life. You're learning so much about her and her history, her family's history. And what I thought was really interesting was just what she shared about just being Chaldean and the Arab population in Detroit and being persecuted because it's a Christian Arab population, which we don't really talk about on a national scale, right? We don't talk about that on the national level. And it's not in conversations really about this particular people group here and um, making their way. And I'm, you know, from Detroit and I have some, some familiarity, but not, but not any insight. And so it was very insightful just to, to hear about, you know, her people and, you know, her American story, her family's American story, just fascinating, very insightful. I feel like I walked away learning a lot from this book. And the last word is angering. Yeah. From the very first chapter, I was like, we're upset. We are upset. And she goes through painstaking detail. She includes texts and emails, just cataloging or chronicling what happened during this time period. And I want to say it starts in 2014 through 2015 is when 2016, she touches upon 2016 as well, but it's maddening. It really is very angering what people did to get around the issue, how they tested the water in ways that diluted the lead in the water, even though there was still lead in the water, they, they could never dilute it enough for there not to be the presence of lead in the water. But the way that they handled it on the front end of trying to dilute the results, publishing very confusing information of just outright denying that there was lead in the water to the glib, we are following all state and federal protocol and I mean, it was just clear. And, you know, it's clear from the beginning that they were lying. Obviously, like I said, this was ripped from the headlines. Like we we saw what the the truth was. The truth was that there was lead and there was a cover-up. But to see it from her perspective, how she was walking through it in the moment before the government actually admitted that they created this crisis. That was maddening. It was it was so angering because these are people. These are children. Children's lives. 
And I mean, obviously she talks about race in this book because that, that was really a big factor. This is America. Race is a big factor. It, it is in the fabric. It's woven into the fabric of our society, unfortunately, in a in a system of hierarchy. And she talks about that. I mean, she she really lays it all out, but it's just fascinating and very angering. It's fascinating and angering to just read this story of how a whole generation of children, specifically children, but the whole population, everyone, right, was drinking this water. But the impact on the children for the future, it's just, it's angering. And um, I will say that she does end the book on a hopeful note. It was very obvious that that was the direction, right? The editorial direction is that we have to end on a happier note or a hopeful note. And so she does that. I felt that. But she does say in the book, and this came out in 2018, she said, you know, it's ongoing, right? The the funds were released. The recognition was made. The apologies were made. The remediation is ongoing. But, the, but not everyone's water is drinkable even still. And even looking online, this was, uh, this was a book that pushed me to look and see what's happening right now. Even now, they still have pipelines to to take out, right? They switch back to uh, their original water source, but it is still, you know, and and they've done the corrosive prevention methods that they needed to have done from the very beginning that they didn't do, but it's still ongoing. And the kids who are poisoned, the kids who have lead in their system, the kids whose brain functions will be forever changed because they did not handle this water switch source switch properly will be impacted for the rest of their lives. So yeah, the book is What the Eyes Don't See by Mona Hanna Atisha. It came out in 2018. Check it out if you so choose. All right, y'all. Moving on to the topic of the day. Listen, I got a question recently and I get this question a lot when people find out that I'm a writer. Someone asked me, what is my process and what time of the day do I write? Specifically, what time of the day do I write is where I want to focus here because it was an interesting question. I I would say as someone who not just, you know, the middle spouse life, but just as someone who like moves around a lot. And for y'all who move around a lot, you know what I mean. You really have to adjust your life to whatever is happening in that moment so that you can keep in touch with all the people you need to keep in touch with. You really have to adjust, right, to wherever you are. And specifically for y'all who are moving across different time zones, y'all, I can relate, right? I can relate. Like, listen, it is, it's a lot if you're going from, you know, Eastern time zone, and then all of a sudden you're you're in Japan. Like that that thing is wild. That thing is really wild. Just to and especially when you have people, and which we typically do, right? Friends or family who are in different time zones, y'all. And so it's just, it just got me to thinking. You know, how do I respond to this question? And the way I I put it to the person, I said, "Listen, when I lived in Japan, I had." a 14 hour typically time difference sometimes it was 13 hours time difference 
from Central Time, which is where most of my family lives. And most of them live in the Central Time Zone. And then I have friends everywhere, uh, a lot on the East Coast, you know, some on the West Coast, and everywhere in between. But listen, and then I have, you know, once again, friends in Spain and in Mother Love in Germany. Like I have people everywhere, y'all, people everywhere. And so what I said was, listen, the morning times for me when I was living in Japan was was catching up time. And when I say catching up, I mean catching up to people, family, friends. And so for me writing, and a lot of writers, they're like, I write in the morning because that's when I'm the most fresh. Listen, I like, I'm, I'm a people person. I like to be with the people. I like to communicate. I like to keep my relationships strong. And so that means lots of communication, okay? So I couldn't get up early in the morning and write. I could have, but that would have been sacrificing time with loved ones, time on the phone, texting, lots of video chatting with loved ones. And so I push my time of writing usually back to either late morning or early afternoon. And here we go, Mill Spouse Life. I am in a different time zone, y'all, moving these time zones. And I've pretty much kept that schedule more so because, listen, it, it'd be difficult <laughs> to, to adjust with all of the different habits that you want to maintain, plus these time zone differences that make it very different. So for me now, the thing that it got me to thinking, you know, what does the move, what do these time zones specifically when you're moving, what do they do? to your schedule, y'all. And so, or what does it do to your life? And so I was just thinking, one, my writing schedule. And for y'all out there, you know, you have whatever you do, right? Whether your job, it's a lot, some of y'all working at home, especially middle spouses are working from home. Or if you're, you know, working and you've been stationary for a long time, you're not moving time zones like that, but your spouses, Okay, right. They out on a ship, you know, particularly for Navy, they're moving, you know, ship is moving time zones. Or if they're in a different branch, right, they're moving time zones. Maybe they were somewhere. I remember my brother was in the Air Force. And one moment he was in Germany. And then the next thing we knew, he was in Qatar. And it's like, okay, so how do we communicate with him now? Like, when, when will he be up? When will he be communicating with us? Y'all, you know, no matter how it goes, whether you're moving or they're moving, it's a juggle, is it not? It is a juggle. And so one, just adjusting, right? And some of y'all know you get up in the middle of the night just to be able to do that quick video chat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have been in time zones and trying to communicate with people. And it's just like, okay, it's 9 p.m., let's go, right? <laughs> and even though you're ready to go to sleep or whatever, you know that's the only time that you are going to be able to really match the schedule so that both of you are up, okay? So that's one thing that happens with these time zone switches, right? It's just you have to adjust. You have to really change your schedule around, which for me as a writer, I have some flexibility, right, to do that. But it's still it's still a thing, okay? Getting things done, I have to really like switch my mind over to think about if I use this time up, is it going to get in the way of me being able to communicate with my peoples? And not only that, y'all, 
Mm-hmm. For those who are stationed abroad, you already know that you, even though your life is there and wherever wherever you are, whatever country you're at, you still have business in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right? You still have storage units that you have to keep up with or if there's some issue or question you have to ask and you want to ask it on the phone, you have to call during certain hours. You already know you might have a car that's in storage. You might have right insurance or whatever, right, that you have to deal with back in the States. And you have to look and make sure that you are up in order to make that phone call or receive that phone call or text or whatever, or email the people or be on the chat with the people during their normal business hours, right? And that that time zone just difference. It does things to us. It just makes our schedule work around the time zones. And honestly, what's, what's wild, not just that, but um, just the things that you have to, to keep in touch with, right? The, th- the little things that, that help you when you're trying to to manage these things. Y'all, I know you probably have those widgets because that's that thing helped me. The little widgets for the clocks, the different world clocks. I remember being a kid and looking, you know, going to the hotel and they show you the time in London, the time in Montreal, the time in uh, Dubai, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cute. It's like decoration. No, 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 no. That thing is useful in real life because I know when I was in Japan, listen, I had to know what time it was for me. I had to know what time it was for Central US. And of course, it was easy Central to Eastern. So I wasn't worried about that too much. I can just think one hour forward. So that wasn't a big deal. But I also had to understand and know what time it was in like Frankfurt, Germany, okay, to make sure I had that right. Y'all, y'all, these time zones. And so my little widget helped me out. And, you know, it's just different things, scheduling meetings, and you're about to go to a new place. You're about to like fly to another time zone and making sure these calendars sync up and know that you're in a different place. Mm-hmm. Making sure your computer knows you're in a different place and make sure that time is right and make sure those calendar invitations or those calendar events sync up right. Y'all, it, it, it's the thing and it's a privilege for sure. It's a privilege to be able to move between different time zones and have people, loved ones and all of that in different places. But y'all, you already know it is definitely some work as well. All right, y'all, moving on to the last portion of the podcast. Let, let's get on in to a little bit of flash fiction. And this one I have for you all today is called Secret Agent No More. If there wasn't already enough stress making punching bags out of my gut, my phone is also ringing. I'm wobbling, bent over a toilet commode where I puke up foodless bile because all I ate last night were soda crackers. I feared this call since I woke up this morning. I pleaded to the gods that last night was just a dream, that nothing out of the ordinary happened. But it wasn't, and it didn't, and what a wretched place I'm in. My boss, George, is no doubt calling to request information that I don't have, and after last night, I'll never have that report on his desk. I need a plan, some kind of James Bond 
Jason Bourne, Wonder Woman, Secret Agent, Getaway, Next Level, Escape Plan, some kind of abort mission, try a new way into the lair of international money launderers kind of plan. Because I'm not good at fighting bad guys. Not the sexy kind, anyway. I knew the private penthouse meeting with Johan was risky, but I met him anyway. And instead of extracting secrets, it was a little whiskey here and a little vodka there, plus a little kiss and a little touch until I was proud out on his bearskin rug, spilling steak secrets juicy enough for a tabloid's first page. Now here I am, above a toilet, in some abandoned house, in some forsaken town, in some foreign country, trying to figure out how I'm going to get home. I don't even know if I still have a home. But I do know that I have cell phone service. And George is calling my line once again. All right, y'all, that is it for this episode of Station With Stories. You know that you can find me on the website, stationwithstories.com. That is where all of the podcasts are. And, of course, all of the all of the flash fiction and the other goodies that I have in terms of original work. They're all there on the website. You can follow me at stationed underscore story on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter, too. and Y'all, rate the podcast. You know what to do. Give it all the stars. Tell people why you love Station With Stories. Share the podcast with a friend. And I'll be back next Monday. It's Station With Stories. I am your host, Kalisha Hollis-Jesse. Bye, peeps. (laughs)